Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Terry Talks Fiction. We're back after a small two-week hiatus while the school holidays were on because I just cannot record while there are three kids screaming about the house as it turns out. And we're finally coming back, not only with another book review, but finally with the review of Brandon Sanderson's Rhythm of War. And let me just start off by saying this book is a chonk. I guess I officially started reading this before Christmas, and I only got a few chapters in before I realised I was going to have to really set aside some dedicated time just to sit down and plough through the thing. I'll talk a little bit about why that is in a minute, but I have to admit it felt a little bit sad to do so since I have a bit of a personal record with Sanderson's books up to this point of reading them all within a single sitting. Whether that might mean that I had to sit in bed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and read through until 11 o'clock the next morning as I totally never called in sick for just specifically to do when I was working a 9 to 5 job. And equally, I totally didn't not turn up for a wedding rehearsal because I was reading The Way of Kings. But in the three or so years in between uh, the previous book, Oathbringer, and Rhythm of War, it's interesting to see how things have changed with my reading habits. And one of the reasons why it was so tempting to sort of put the book down and come back to it later was because when I did start reading this book, I quickly realised that within the first couple of chapters, it was less like I was reading a book and more like I was sitting down to take an exam that I hadn't studied for. Brandon Sanderson's books are famously large and famously chunky, and being the fifth book in the series, or sixth if you consider that the first book was split into two separate publications, as a part one and a part two, there are a lot of characters and plot lines and intersecting motivations and diverging pathways to get on top of, and the book starts lickety-split in the middle of the action, in the middle of several of these lines running simultaneously and interweaving with each other, and there's a lot of character names and place names and secondary tertiary characters being turned and talked to or turning up, and that's even before we start to get into the wider interactions that this book specifically has with Sanderson's Cosmia And it's a lot to take in all at once. If you're a fan of the series that hasn't touched it for a while, I'd recommend either finding a a primer online to sort of run through where the plot has gone and where it's at before you start, or if you have the time to reread through all the books again, because this book did refer back to a lot of things that happened back in the very first book of the Stormlight Archive, The Way of Kings, specifically where it comes to Navani's character and the interactions and the plans of the old King Gavilar, whose assassination in the very first chapters of the first book set in motion every single thing that's come on since. And it was remarkable, even with it's been probably nearly 10 years since the last time I read that first book, And it's remarkable, a real strength in Sanderson's writing, just how much 
those scenes still exist in my memory. So when I was reading through the interactions and the memories with Navani in this book, it was amazing how much it really put those old interactions into a new context and changed the way I looked at those past scenes, which I still remembered even when the narrative now was taking parts that happened before or parts that happened after the scene or scenes that we saw back in that first book. But it's all so well scaffolded and so well structured that those little reminders about what was leading into an important scene in a past novel was enough to trigger the memories of how that scene ran and really put you back in that moment and understand what was happening with the additional context for those scenes that you have now. It was fascinating and really exciting, but at the same time, as I said, did feel kind of like you were being tested on exactly how well you remembered all those past moments. So a bit of a refresher before jumping in would be a good idea. And I would be remiss as well if I didn't mention that there is a novella which directly ties into Rhythm of War and came out uh, a bit earlier called Dawn Shard. It is not a novella that I read going into this book, but it is one that I'm going to pick up now just to get that extra context again. I feel that this book works really well. It's very well structured. It works really well and can be fully understood and appreciated without that additional context. But if you are a fan of the series and you want to consume as much as you can of Sanderson's, then obviously that is a stop on the road. And while we're talking about rereading, I don't think there's been a single other book in all of Sanderson's everything. I can't pronounce the word oeuvre. Is all of his published works that has made me want to go back and read all of the others as well. As I noted earlier, this is another book in the Cosmia. The Stormlight Archive is a very pivotal series in the meta-narrative that's running throughout Sanderson's Cosmia, which is the main bulk of his published works, all existing in the same grand scope universe. Sort of all of these different books taking places on planets or solar systems within that overarching binding universe. And there are so many cameos and so much that's touched on from those other series and planets and magic systems and characters coming into this book. It feels really dense. I don't think there was a... It felt like, anyway, that there wasn't really a single chapter that didn't reflect in some way on something else in the Cosmia. And considering how many chapters are in this, like, 1,200-page book, it gives you a bit of an idea how much additional context from the Cosmia is being woven through this story. I mean, I personally picked up on quite a few of these elements and in discussions with some other fans of the series, it's blown my mind just how much more there was in there that I might have recognised was something from somewhere in the Cosmia but couldn't put my finger on where. I felt a little bit embarrassed in particular for missing the very, very clear connection with Elantris, Sanderson's first fantasy novel, which is sort of revealed halfway through, but 
very revealed by the end, and I still missed exactly how that link went. But for people who are looking, there is there are characters from Warbreaker. There are items from Warbreaker. There are, there's sand from the graphic novel. There's alimantic minerals and metals. There's discussion about the, the shards and their place in the wider Cosmere universe. There's explanations for exactly why characters are the way they are in the other magic systems of other books based on what we discover about Stormlight in this book. It's really, really interesting seeing how many tendrils from the Cosmere are coming into this book and coming out again as well. It's very clear, and we know that Sanderson is starting to draw these pieces together, but it is very clear from this book specifically that this is a turning point in the way the Cosmere is being explored and related to the reader. And like I said, the structure of the book is so good that you don't need to have that background in all of those other elements in order to appreciate this story. But for those, you know, the super fans, or even just the other people who have read the books in Sanderson's body of work, it's really, really cool to see all the little ways that this is interacting with itself and just how that additional contextual understanding from having read those other books just enhances the narrative in really subtle but really fun ways. And the narrative in this is really interesting. I stress interesting instead of just going out and saying it's great or it's good because there are some themes that are presented in this book which are very similar to other themes that have been explored in the other books of this series, particularly when it comes to the character of Kaladin. It's really refreshing and it's really interesting to see Sanderson's take on Kaladin's character specifically. But if you've read the other books in the Stormlight Archive coming into this, and one would expect that you have, it does feel a little bit like that character is constantly sort of not being reset, but that the same sort of points are being explored over and over. I think it's done really well in this book. and. It takes it to new places, but it's very interesting to see this approach to character development being a bit more of a sidestepping around the development rather than a linear path. It's almost like, you know, if you have water running downhill, you could divert the water into a new channel, or you could sort of pile rocks there and it'll sort of ooze around the rocks but continue going on the same path it's going. And that feels a little bit like Kaladin's character. Just almost as if the, the pressure of if, if his character path is sort of pushing those boulders along with him rather than finding a way to go beyond them. Which by book four is a very unusual place to be in regards to the usual exploration of characters through this genre. Because you all know the sort of the saying where, you know, for characters and narrative development, the idea is that in Act 1, you'll chase your characters up a tree, in Act 2, you'll throw stones at them, and in Act 3, you get them down again. It's a very classic genre structure for fantasy, science fiction, speculative fiction in general. It tends to follow the three-act structure, both within a book and across a series as well. 
But it seems like for these characters, for certainly the central cast of Kaladin, Navani, and Shallan, Vale, Radiant, Formless, everyone else who lives inside Shallan's head, it seems like sort of Sanderson got all these characters together, chased them up a tree, started throwing rocks, ran out of rocks. So instead of getting them down again, he stopped looking for rocks and he built a trebuchet and started throwing boulders at them instead. It's a super interesting approach and it's certainly pulled off, but it's very curious to see how that approach tests the three different characters in this book. As I said, Kaladin seems to have sort of been through this multiple times already. In drawing from the same well again and again, we're getting different perspectives on the same central topic, which is a valuable exploration, but feels different for the genre. The other two main characters in this book, Navani and Shallan, and Venli as well, who has a different core problem to the other three, which is why I'm not focusing on her right now. It's really interesting to see the way that that approach affects the other, the other characters. Navani in particular is interesting because we haven't seen a whole lot of her before this book. She's certainly a, a present character, but this one really digs into her and her motivations and what she feels and thinks about the actions that we've seen her take up to this point. She really sort of comes into her own in this novel, especially in terms of her positioning as a Fabriel scholar and her understanding of how Fabrials are made and what they can be made to do. And it's really, really interesting to see her thought process that's running behind her achievements and just really getting an idea of how damaged her soul is from her first marriage and just how much baggage she's been carrying through the entire series to this point. It's also really refreshing to see the way that that resolves or fails to resolve or sort of sideways resolves again because as with Kaladin and we'll get to Shallan and Venli as well, Sanderson's approach in this novel is bucking that general trend of the genre where characters sort of get over things and move on. It's why you don't see all those chapters after Frodo and Sam return to the Shire where they wake up with nightmares for decades, reliving the moments on the side of the mountain where they thought they were going to die. This book does not resolve the similar conditions for their characters in the same way. It doesn't skip over sort of the horror and the trauma and the way that these characters being in these positions is affecting them emotionally as well as sort of, you know, their power level increasing as the story progresses across the books. And it's really interesting to see how Navani comes to terms with herself in regards to, you know, this shadow of her late husband hanging over her throughout all of her endeavours and just how much it meant to her in the time they spent together that their relationship developed the way that it did. It's also really interesting in that regard to see how Shallan deals with her own demons in this book as well. 
and how the sort of split personality thing that she had going ends up working out long term. It's always probably a bit fraught when you're dealing with things of a mental nature when you have access to fantasy magic. There's got to be a real temptation to be able to fix things. To be able, like to rub out an emotional scar as though it were a physical one on someone's body with a little bit of stormlight and a bit of accelerated healing. So the nature of Shallon's particular demons has been really interesting throughout the series with the different personas that she's created for herself in order to fight through her own damaged past. We finally sort of find out what the key inciting incident was in this book. Although we did already know what the incident was, like with the wider Cosmia, this novel is adding additional context and building a bigger picture of that moment so we can really understand just how it was that Shallon fractured the way that she did. It's super interesting to see all of the intricate levels at play in Shallon's part of the story, and in particular the way that her relationship with Adeline really impacts the way that she is growing as a character. Her choices and the ultimate conclusion to her arc in this is very confronting because it forces her to confront those moments in her past and how that's reflected in herself in the present. And seeing the way that her different personalities matured and evolved through the course of this well, sorry, I am an archaeologist, so I should say metamorphosed rather than evolved in this book and in her travels through Shadesmar was fascinating and felt really, well, real. The very distinct parts of her personality were distinct enough but still all recognisably shallow. That it was really, it was really fun to watch how they interacted with each other inside her head and how they interacted when she was portraying a particular one of those personas and interacting with the other people around her. And it comes to a really valuable place in the end for her as a character as well. Thanks in no small part to her husband Adeline and the way that his character is explored in this novel. And it's really funny because I feel like I really would have loved to have seen more time with Adeline's character specifically and just exploring the way that his part of the narrative was reflective of everyone else's. Because although I really fell in love with Kaladin the first time I read the books, and since The Way of Kings was the first Brandon Sanderson book I ever read, got me into, well... I now have an entire shelf, which is uh, my bookcase behind me, which is solely filled with Sanderson's books. They are very thick books and they need a lot of space. I feel I would have gladly traded out half of the time we spent with Kaladin for an extra half of time spent with Adeline instead. Because he and Venley's part of the story are the other half of the character development for the other three that we've talked about, 
Kaladin and Shallan and Navani. Adelin has a really, really cool character arc in this. Just focused around so much on who he is as a person and the value that he has. The value that his defining characteristics of his personality has in a world that are filled with superhumans. Because when you're surrounded by Knights Radiant and Ancient Ones, things could probably feel a little small. And having Adeline address this but not overcome this was a very interesting exploration of his character. And the way that the narrative progression showed he doesn't need to overcome this was really fascinating. Because again, I feel that if this was a book that was written in the 90s, when I grew up reading the bulk of the science fiction and fantasy I read in my childhood, I feel that he would have been rewarded by the end of this book for his good and noble deeds by earning that power that everybody else has. And that's not the way that this is treated at all. Instead, the way that he reflects just the power of healing and just the power that comes from love is really, really cool. And it's really fantastic to see put against the other three characters. And the same goes for Venli in this as well. Not a character that I ever really felt anything for up to this point. And at the start of this book, I admit I was sort almost skimming through her chapters wanting to get to the more interesting things. But as the book continued and we learned more about Venli's path to where she is now, and we saw more about how she is acting in the present, because most of her chapters in this book are from the past. They take place before the Way of Kings and put all of those other actions in the first couple of books into this new context. It's really interesting to get that depth of character behind her. And her journey, while not really one of redemption in the classic sense, is interesting to see develop from that self-acceptance that Navani and Shallan and Kaladin are all also facing. Between Adelin and Venli, it's like every single question that the other three main characters raised is answered by those two in different but complementary ways. And it's really, really strong in the writing that that is not overt. It's not a hammer over the head. And it's not tied up in a neat little bow for any of those characters at the end. But their development is, it's credible. And the reader can put all the pieces together and just see how they, how the reader themselves is reflected in each of those characters and how each of those components are valuable, important, emotional lessons for the reader specifically. So it's really, really well done and together makes this really great exploration of character against genre convention that would, in times past, as I say, have ended very differently for each of these characters or not touched on these particular topics at all. And beside all the character work, that happens in the narrative too, you have this underlying and just thorough development of the Cosmere 
that is happening on all of these pages and in all the ways these characters interrelate. It's really great. It makes a really meaty narrative. And while, if I'm being honest, I do feel that Sanderson could have achieved everything in this book by cutting out a third of it, because we spent a lot of time focusing around one specific issue in Urathiru, where it did feel almost like we were spinning wheels for a lot of that part of the narrative. It's still so densely packed with clues about the narrative progression of the Cosmere that leading up to the final chapters of the book, which are utterly explosive for that meta-narrative, it feels very, very exciting to see how that's going to develop or to predict how that's going to develop based on what happened in this book. I really wasn't expecting it to end the way it did because in some regards it did feel like with Kaladin's character a little bit like going back to the same well. Hint, hint. For the way that part of it resolved, it's really exciting and interesting to see what will happen next with that and it's something that I really want to see. And I really want to understand how what happens in the next book is going to affect the characters that we've come to know and love through this series. Because there are some of them which probably can't survive the events of what's going to come. And it'll be very interesting to see which ones those are and exactly how that takes place. And how it's going to tie in with illuminating exactly what has been going on with the other shards throughout the other series and just how how it's going to tie up, how they're all going to tie together because there were so many leads put out in this book. You know, as I said, there was sand, there were birds, there were multiple things from Elantris. It was almost a sequel to Warbreaker in a lot of regards. And the next book is going to focus on a character with some very close connections to the Warbreaker narrative. But there's Mistborn stuff in here, and there's so much other stuff that's been referenced before in this series that has just come back to the forefront again. Like things with the Night Mother, exactly what Lyft's powers are and how they work, even though she barely appears in this novel. There's still so much sort of explosive new developments in those characters and their power sets and how it all ties together that it leaves the series in a really really exciting place and I can't wait to see where it goes next but how about you guys have you read Rhythm of War did you beat me to it it has been out for a while now so I wouldn't be surprised if you had especially if you are a fan of the series hit me up in the comments on the Facebook page or on Twitter at TC McManus or head over to the Discord server Talking Fiction. I'd love to really just get into the weeds on this series and this book because there's nothing more exciting than just sharing the tidbits that you'd found and as I said there were things in there that I am shocked that I missed specifically with the Elantra's connection. So if you've noticed something in there I haven't referenced in this breakdown, then please tell me about it because I really want to know 
how some things tie together that I may have not have seen. I'm really keen to talk about uh, this one more for anyone who wants to, so please do hit us up on those places. And if you do have some time, but not that much time, I greatly appreciate a like or a rating on iTunes as well. It does help the visibility for the show and help more people find it. And every little bit helps. So until next week when we're back on our regular schedule again, I hope you all read or watch something that's really exciting and I look forward to talking about it with you soon. <laughs>